Hello, church. Well, now we have the opportunity to open God's word together. But before we do, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would please help us as we open your word this morning. May we hear your voice loud and clear. May we be drawn to you, to trust you more. And Father, may you please humble our hearts as we recognize our need for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On September 8th, 1900, a powerful hurricane began to pummel the city of Galveston, Texas. But the residents of that city failed to heed any warnings. There was a problem with the warning system and they didn't get warning in time. But even when warning began to come, people began to scoff at those warnings, saying that they'd lived through many storms before and they'll live through this one as well. In fact, there were reports of people proudly going about their daily activities, continuing on towards their jobs and and everything else in the midst of the rising water in the streets and things flying by because of the wind outside. In fact, around noon at a local restaurant there in Galveston, uh, it was full of of businessmen and and they all kind of laughed heartily at the courage that they have that that they were men there sitting there waiting out the storm and not afraid by the wind and the waves. Unfortunately, moments later, the building collapsed on top of them because of the mounting storm. And in fact, the whole city was absolutely devastated by the hurricane that day. No family was uh, left unscathed. And the whole city was brought to its knees in one of the deadliest natural disasters in U.S. history. And this is a pattern that we see time and again throughout human history, is that calamity humbles humanity. Calamity humbles humanity. People should naturally be humble before God, should live lives humbly, and yet we don't because of sin, and ever since Genesis 3, we've lived boastfully, arrogantly. And so it often takes great calamity, often natural disasters or things of the sort to humble us, to recognize that we're not in control, to recognize that there is a power that is greater than us. And when calamity hits, the wise take it to heart, and they are humbled before their Creator. And this truth is that calamity should cause us to turn to God. When disaster strikes, it should point our gaze heavenward. Jesus even recognized this in Luke chapter 13. There was a a, a pillar that fell on some people. When asked about that incident, he simply used it as an opportunity to, to, to direct the people asking the question, listen, you should repent Otherwise, you too shall perish. In other words, this is an example that that we all will die and and that we all need to get right with our Creator. The same is true today. That when calamity strikes or an outbreak happens, that it should cause all mankind to look to the Lord. And we recognize in these times that we're not in control and that our only hope is in God. Last week, we began looking at what I'm calling our firm foundation. And we looked at, began looking at some foundation stones that are in the foundation of our faith that we have available to us. 
foundation stones that if we only would look and see that because uh, of all that we have in Christ, these stones are already there, they're under our feet, we simply need to stand strong upon them and know that we can weather the storm. Last week we looked at the first two of these uh, five foundation stones, and today we're going to be looking at the last three of those. And the point in all of this is that we have tremendous resources in our triune God. That we are not weak uh, believers left out here without any resources in this world. But no, as we stand in, 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 a, in a fallen world in which there is difficulty and pain and suffering all around us, that we are not left without resources. We are not left without help. As we looked at a few weeks ago, the Lord is our help. And our help comes from Him. We simply need to realize all that we have in Him. And so we're simply spotlighting some of these foundation stones in our faith. Last week we studied first the sovereignty of God. First we looked at the sovereignty of God. And in this we saw that the sovereignty of God simply means that he is supreme, that he is above all, that there is no one who stands above him. He is God most high. We saw first that his will is sovereign. Our God is in the heavens And he does all that he pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3. His plan from eternity past stands and all that he has, does, and will do happens according to his will. Remember we quoted Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 that says, He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. His plan cannot be derailed or disrupted. It is sovereign. We also saw that his authority is sovereign. Because he created the world, it belongs to him. He therefore has the authority to dictate what happens on it, and he is the only lawgiver, James 4.12 says. And so there's no one that can tell God what to do because he's the supreme sovereign authority. No one can command him because he holds the supreme seat of authority. But in concert with his will and with his authority, we saw his sovereign power. That he is able to do whatever his will directs. He can do whatever he decides because he has the power to carry it out. He's never in the position of wanting to do something but unable to do it. He has all resources. His power is inexhaustible. He never grows tired or weary. By his power, the heavens were made. By his power, He parted the Red Sea and all of Pharaoh's army were destroyed. By his power, Israel conquered its enemies and were planted in the promised land. You see, the the scriptures are full of examples of God's mighty, sovereign power. But let's remember why we are looking at these attributes of God. The reason it's important for us to see the sovereignty of God, why are they foundation stones for us? Because it enables us to stand. We can stand firm during turbulent times because God is sovereign. But not only can we trust God because of his sovereignty, but we can trust and depend on him because of his providence. His providence. That was the second characteristic that we looked at last week. The providence of God. By providence, we simply mean that God sustains and governs all things within his creation. And he does it by his fatherly hand. 
we noted how God's providence is simply sovereignty in action. Because he is sovereign, he works in and through his creation to accomplish his will. It's his power surging throughout his creation to accomplish his will. We looked at how he sustains and upholds all life on this planet. He upholds the galaxies so that this universe holds together by the word of his power. He also controls all things in his creation. We talked about how there's nothing outside of his control, including man's choices and sin. And this gives great comfort to us as believers because we know that everything that takes place is directed by the sovereign hand of God. And to get specific about our, our time and our days that we live in now, that there, this virus that is spread around the globe and has caused societal shutdowns with the resulting economic hardships looming, they are not random. They are not outside of God's control. God is not wondering how to reel all this back in, how to gain control again. This is not a world out of control. They are being used by God for His purposes. Again, like we looked at last week, just as He used difficult and evil and difficult uh, and sin in the story of Joseph to bring about good for him and for the nation of Israel, and just like He used the sinful choices of mankind uh, in the crucifixion of Jesus to bring about the greatest good. We don't know what God's purposes are for allowing COVID-19 to spread around the globe. But we know that he designs to bring himself glory, first and foremost. And we, we can pray along those ends that God would receive glory during this pandemic. And we also know that he means to do his people good through this. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And it's this aspect of God working good for his people that I want us to turn to next. So we've first looked, reviewing from last week, we've seen the sovereignty of God and the providence of God as the first two foundation stones. The next foundation stone, the third one that we will be looking at is the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Think about this. The first two points we already looked at, the sovereignty and the providence of God, would not be helpful to us if it were not for this third attribute, this third point about God. In other words, if, if we had a God who was sovereign and who worked and was in control of all things, but he was not good, that would be horrible news. We would not take comfort. We would not be able to stand in knowing that there's a sovereign God. We would not be able to take comfort in this kind of God. If God was not good, we would have an evil tyrant in the sky, a despot. He, he couldn't be trusted. He would, he would seek to deceive us. He would try to do us ill. And in fact, if he was all-powerful, he could do us ill very easily. But the Bible emphatically declares over and over again that God is good. It's almost as if the Lord knows that we need to be reminded of that. It's not just that there's one verse that says that uh, God is good. There are so many verses that say God is good. 
Psalm 135, verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. He's deserving of all praise because He is good. Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. And this goodness that is not just something that we're to know about and go, oh great, God's good, all right, I'll move on from there. But the goodness of God is something that we should delight in. It should be sweet to our taste. It should be something that gives us great joy. Psalm 34, verse 8, uh, 34, verse 8 a familiar verse to us, says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Friends, we are not just to be able to read that God is good on the page and, and leave it there, but we're to, we're to eat that truth and have it sink down into our souls and for us to delight in it as if we're eating the richest and, and tastiest food. We're supposed to taste and see that He is good. Exodus chapter 33. In fact, I'll invite you to turn there. Let's turn to Exodus 33. Here, Moses is asking to see God's glory. He's asking to see God's glory, and God says that He will cause his goodness to pass before Moses. Again, we're talking about his goodness. Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. Moses says in verse 18, Please show me your glory. And Yahweh says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, verse 20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So Moses asked to see his glory, see his face, see the full expression of his glory. God says, no, but I allow my goodness to pass before you. What does that look like? When, when God actually passes his goodness before Moses, what does that look like? Well, we see that in the next chapter, in Exodus 34. Look with me uh, in verse 6. We'll look, start in verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Here we see, that as God revealed and passed his goodness before Moses, that God told us what are some of the attributes that are included in his goodness. When he says his goodness, what, what does he see including in those? Well, we see it includes his steadfast love. 
It includes His grace, His slowness to anger, and His mercy. And these attributes of God were displayed to Israel at many points again and again throughout their history. David and the other psalmists uh, meditated on and celebrated this goodness, this love of God, the steadfast love of the Lord. The prophets reminded the people of the Lord's love for his chosen people, calling them back, helping them to remember what God had said previously. But when we come to the New Testament, we see that the church was given an even clearer picture, an even grander display of the love of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Certainly the love of God is seen all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. But there was a way in which the love of God was made manifest, was, was clearly displayed, unlike any time before, in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we see this explained for us in 1 John chapter 4, and I invite you to invite you to turn there, 1 John chapter 4. Again, we're looking at foundation stones that we, must, that we already have in our faith, that we simply need to remember in these days that we might stand firm. We need to remember the goodness and the love of God. Because it's easy in the midst of storms, in the midst of trial and difficulty, to forget some of these key attributes of God. 1 John chapter 4, look with me at verse 8 through 10. It says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, we need to recognize and see the love of God in these verses. John tells us that the love of God was made manifest. It was made clear in God's sending of His own Son. He sent His Son not just to be a moral example for us to follow, although he is that. He sent his son not just to be a teacher of divine things, although he did do that, but he sent his son in order to be the propitiation for our sins. Now the word propitiation is a word that means satisfaction or appeasement. And in this context, it means that Jesus is the one who satisfied God's wrath on behalf of sinners. It is through his death upon the cross that sinners are forgiven. He paid the penalty in full. And so there as he stood and he absorbed all of the wrath of God on behalf of sinners, he is therefore the propitiation for their sins. He is the wrath absorber for their sins. And friends, it is in the midst of suffering and difficulty, that we must look to the sufferings of Christ and see the love of God on display for us. We must return again and again. This is our security. This is our refuge. That we are loved eternally by the Almighty God. That His love is steadfast, unmovable, unshakable. 
And it was displayed in the giving of His Son. Now, from these verses, why is it that the love of God can be a refuge for us? Why can right now in your circumstances the love of God be a refuge for you that you should turn to day in and day out? First, I want to to highlight from these verses the four reasons. And the first is that because it's rooted in God's character. Love is rooted in God's character. Verse 8 says God is love. He doesn't just have love, although he does have it. He doesn't just express love, but he is love. God is the definition of love. We know that God, the triune three-in-one, Father, Son, and Spirit, existed from all eternity past, and they expressed perfect and holy love for one another. A love within that divine community in which they shared and passed love to one another. And therefore, it's inherent in the Godhead. We do not have a solitary figurehead. We do not have a single person as God, as, say, like Islam teaches. Because for that God to love means he's got no one to love in and of himself. He needs his creation in order to love. But we have a God that from eternity past, before creation ever took place, there was love. And it existed in the triune God. God is love. It is a stable reality, and therefore it is a steadfast refuge for us. Second reason God's love can be a refuge for us is because it stems from God's own free decision. God was not coerced into giving us this love. He's not doing it regrettably. He's not being forced into it. It says not Uh, Verse 10, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. In other words, it was before anything had, had been directed to God, God directed His love towards us. It was part of His free decision that He chose to set His love upon you, beloved. He chose to love you in His own free decision. And that should give you hope and give you rest and give you comfort. The third reason that God's love can be a refuge for us is that it's targeted for our good. It's a love that is seeking to give us the most good. And and I think what we see that here is, number one, is that he deals with our sin. He's sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He recognizes that our greatest problem is our sin. He is a a sin not against someone else, but this is a sin against himself. And he has every right to judge every human for that sin. And yet, in his love, he looks upon us, despicable, sinful humanity, and chooses, not because of anything beautiful in us, because we are simply uh, rotten sinners, but he chooses to place his love upon us, an act of his will, to love us, to save us, to send his son, and to deal with that sin that keeps us estranged from God. And not only just to get sin out of the way, not only just to forgive and to have all the, his own wrath absorbed into his, into his own son, but, but it says that, that he, did, he sent his son, verse 9, so that we might live through him. God wants us to experience new life, a, a supernatural life, a divine life, a, a spiritual life that we get from God's spirit. When we're saved, God puts his spirit within us and we're 
born again. We're made new. We have new life, and now we can live through Christ. See, friends, God's love was not just a feeling that stayed in his heart. It was, it was, it resulted in an action that brought about your most good. It dealt with your greatest problem and brought about the best good. The fourth reason God's love can be a refuge for us is because we can see that it cost God so great. It cost God his own son. What? How was the love of God made manifest? How was it displayed? It was displayed in that God sent his only son into the world. That God sent his son. God sent that which was most precious to him. He did not hold back. He did not give us second best. He gave us his best. His beloved son with whom he is well pleased. That one that he took great delight in, he sent him, not again, not just to be an example, not just to be a teacher, but to be a sacrifice for us, his creatures who had rebelled against him. Romans 8, 32 says that God the Father did not spare his own son. God did not hold back, but he displayed his love for us in a tremendous way. And so we can look upon the love of God and find great comfort and great security in that love. It's a love that never changes. It's a love that never weakens. It can always be depended upon. And friends, even when our own love for God is weak, I don't know about you, but I find frequently, in fact, it was even this week, I was so uh, saddened and frustrated about my own lack of love for the Lord. And just going, Lord, why is my heart so cold? Why, why am I not thrilled with excitement over the gospel and over the, the crucified Savior for me? And I, my, my own joy in the Lord is sapped because I don't have the, the, the passion and love for the Lord that I want to have. But the Lord is faithful to, dr- to bring me back and to remind me that my security does not depend upon my emotion or my feeling of my love for God but it rests in the fact, the rock-solid truth that God loves me and sent his son for me. I love this quote from uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a a London preacher of a prior generation. And he says this, he says, What matters is God's love to us, not our love to God. Our love is weak and and frail, and fallible. It wanes and waxes. It comes and goes. Thank God my salvation does not depend on me, but on God's love to me. Not upon my frail grasp of him, but upon his strong grasp of me. Take heart in that, beloved, that your salvation doesn't depend upon you, but of but upon God who holds you in the palm of his hand and will never let you go. That is his his steadfast love for you. And in light of all the things that are changing around us, let us look to the one who is constant in all of this, the Lord God. He not only reigns sovereignly over all, but he loves you intimately. 
I pray that in these days, as you are confined mostly to your home, that, that you are able to feel the warmth of the love for you in Christ. That you are able to feel the security of that love, knowing that nothing can pry you away from the love of Christ. And let me remind you of the verses that Bernie read for us earlier in Romans chapter 8. For I am sure, Paul writes, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Believer, rest in that promise. Take comfort in that promise. And see that that is a foundation stone in your faith, enabling you to stand. Well, the fourth foundation stone that we're going to look at and shine a spotlight on is the salvation of God. The fourth foundation stone is the salvation of God. You see, as we have been contemplating the love of God and the, the goodness of God, as, he, as it's expressed in the giving of Christ for our sin, it leads us to consider the salvation given to us through Christ. Now, in one sense, we've already been talking about this salvation. And our salvation is a great cause of joy for, for believers. We talk about being saved. We, when we were saved and that we are saved and we are among the saved. And it is in our salvation that we find great security. This is because we know that God is the one who saves sinners. Jonah Chapter 2, verse 9 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. A very clear declaration that salvation belongs to no one else. Salvation doesn't belong to the Lord and to man. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We also see a clear declaration that God is the one who saves in Titus chapter 3. And I invite you to turn there. Titus chapter 3. Titus, which is right after 2 Timothy Paul wrote this letter to Titus, and it's here that in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, we have a wonderful description of our salvation. Titus 3, verse 4, says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. But the point I want you to see is that Paul very clearly says that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. It wasn't a partnership effort. It was God saving us. We contribute nothing to our salvation. He gets all the credit and all the glory because he does all the work. And this fact that we can't take any credit for our salvation is very clear, as you know, in Ephesians chapter 2, you can turn there as well, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, very well-known verses, but so well-known because they're so key that we understand. 
Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul here says, For by grace, by grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, it couldn't be more clear. God gives us faith so that we might believe and we might be saved. And therefore, it is all a gift. It is all of grace. We can take no credit for it. We can take no boasting in it. If we did anything to contribute to our salvation, any small choice or anything that we can say, yeah, I did that, then we get a little bit of glory. But no, we want all the glory, and the Bible's clear that all the glory goes to God because He is the one who saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't get any glory. We don't get any credit. We don't get any boasting because we contributed nothing to it. Even the faith that we bring to the table is a gift from God. And so the point is is that God is the one who saves. Salvation belongs to Him. And because He is the one who saves, He is also the one who keeps us saved. In other words, our security as as a believer rests in the mighty power of God, not in our feeble faith. I'll say that again. Our security as a believer rests in God's mighty power, not in our feeble faith. If you are saved today, praise the Lord. Praise God that he has redeemed you. He's done it. He has plucked you out of your sin and he has given you eyes to see the beauty of Christ and given you faith to trust in him. And he is the one who keeps you going day after day. He's the one that keeps you believing. He's the one that keeps you from stumbling and will present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, as Jude 24 tells us. So, why is it that our salvation that we're talking about here, the salvation that we receive from God, why is it part of our firm foundation? Why is it a foundation stone? Well, there's three reasons. Number one, because our position in Christ is secure. Our position in Christ is secure. We're going to look at the three main aspects of salvation. When the Bible talks about salvation, it highlights three uh, independent doctrines that are all related. The first is justification. Second is sanctification. And the third is glorification. And the Bible talks about salvation in a holistic sense. It's referring to all three of those. And we're going to look at those three together. The first then really is justification. Described as I put it here, our position in Christ is secure. And we can see this expressed in, in Romans. And so I invite you to turn over there. Romans chapter 3, beginning with a very familiar verse in talking about how we are saved and that it is through being justified by faith. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we've been justified by faith, Paul says. Justified 
by his grace as a gift to be received by faith. And then flip over two chapters to Romans chapter 5, chapter one, or verses 1 and 2. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You see, the doctrine of justification is that we are counted righteous in Christ. It's because of our faith that we are counted righteous in Him. God no longer looks at our, our, our own unrighteous track record, but by the righteous record of Christ's. Therefore, it's through faith that we enter into a new place. We enter into this relationship with Christ, into peace with God, Paul says in Romans 5, verse 1. We are reconciled. The, the, the debt has been paid. And God is no longer wrathful or angry towards us. We enter the, into this place of grace, he says. We stand in this grace, a place in which we experience God's unmerited favor time and time again. And all of this comes to us simply because of faith in Christ. It's by faith alone and no merit of our own. We did not earn this place. We did not earn the righteousness that we, is counted to us. Therefore, let our hearts be at peace knowing that we are eternally justified in Christ. Our justification is not something that can be reversed. Someone cannot be counted righteous in Christ by faith and then God somehow remove that declaration and say, oh, now you're not declared righteous. No, that is a permanent thing that happens when we place our faith in Jesus. It's a one-time event at the moment of salvation. And so we can rest knowing that we are eternally in Christ. Our position in Christ is secured. But our salvation also reminds us that our progress in Christ is certain. Not only are we in Christ and we're in that new place, but, but we're not just where we're at. There's a progress that's taking place. We see this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Again, a common verse that you may be familiar with where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When God saved us, he didn't just bring us into the family and then walk off. He began a work that continues to this day. And notice some features of this work that we see in this verse. Number one, it's a good work. God is bringing about good in your life. Secondly, notice that this work is in you. God's work in our lives is internal. He changes us from the inside out, just like a dirty uh, a poison spirit. Uh, brook must be, must be cleansed by going back to the spring, going back to the source. So our lives must be changed by being changed internally. Our hearts must be changed. But notice too how long God will be about this work. This is not just a short-term thing. He says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God is about this work every day of your life. He never takes a break. There's no weekends. There's no vacation. God is always at work in you for your good. Until the second coming of Christ, it says. 
And so, friends, you can be certain that God is about this mission every single day and that he's, he's working in you to see that you progress more into the image of his Son. We've been predestined to be conformed to that image, Romans 8, 29 says. And therefore, nothing can thwart this purpose of God in our lives. In fact, not even trials, not even suffering can thwart these purposes. And of course, we know that it's often, it is these trials, it is these difficulties that God uses to bring this about in our hearts and lives. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 are clear. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Likewise, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. Verse 5 talks about, it says that, that you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. But then he says this in verse 6, In this, in this inheritance, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, these passages give us a sobering uh, theology of suffering. To recognize that during this life that God is working in saving us to progress us more into the image of Christ. And He often does that through pain and suffering. Now, we don't like that. We would have planned it a different way. We often buck against the pain. We wouldn't plan suffering for ourselves. But in God's sovereign goodness, this is what he often plans to purify. Like gold purified by fire, so his, God's saints are purified by suffering. When I was in college, I had the privilege of hearing Paul David Tripp, the author and speaker, uh, preach in chapel. And I don't remember anything else he said in his sermon, but, I, but one line that he repeated several times during that chapel message, and maybe you've heard him say this in other things that he's, uh, other messages he's given. But he said this, he said, God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not produce on your own. God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not produce on your own. Friends, God is looking to produce Christ in you and Christ in me. We cannot produce Christ in ourselves. We can't change our own hearts. We can't stop sinful habits on our own. We need divine help. And God often brings that help in the way of difficulties. He's purifying us in the heat of our trials burning off the dross that floats to the surface, dross such as selfishness and pride and, and idolatry, showing us things that we trusted in for our happiness and for our security, showing us the ways that we're selfish and only want to please ourselves, having that float to the surface in our trials so that we can repent of it and get rid of it and bring it to the cross and ask God to forgive us and to clear it out of our lives. 
And as he's purifying us, he's producing Christ-likeness. He's producing a humble dependence upon in our hearts, a humble submission to his plan, humble prayer in our hearts for help, a humble devotion to Jesus, and a humble love to others around us as we're broken free of our selfishness and the love of Christ begins to control us. Friends, it's during these troubled times that we can take comfort in knowing that God is working good in us. His Spirit is sanctifying us. He is about a good work that He will continue to do until it gets completed in the day of Christ Jesus. And that brings us to the third aspect of of our salvation. We looked at that our position in Christ is secured, our progress in Christ is certain, and thirdly, our perfection in Christ is sure. Justification, sanctification, glorification. God's salvation will one day be totally complete. We have been set free from the penalty of sin already. We are being currently, through sanctification, being set free from the power of sin on a daily basis. And we will one day be set free from the presence of sin in our lives. Again, remember Philippians 1.6. The completion of the salvation project will happen in the day of Christ Jesus when we are glorified. And it's on that day as we enter heaven and we behold Jesus Christ that we will be changed, will be transformed. John writes in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. We shall look like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Take hope this morning, believer, that your future glory is sure. You will be transformed. God has great and grand plans for you. He's promised to entirely remake you in the image of His Son He loved you from eternity past and He has plans for you that stretch into the eternal future. And that leads us to our fifth and final theological stone for us this morning that we will consider. The fifth stone in our theological foundation for us to see is the, I'm calling the heaven of God. The heaven of God. The heaven in which God dwells. You see, we live in a world that doesn't believe in the afterlife or doesn't want to hear anything about eternity. The concept of a life after this one's avoided and the truth that everyone will give an account to a divine judge for their actions is repudiated. And yet the Bible is clear that heaven and hell exist. Heaven, the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed saints, and hell, the eternal dwelling place of condemned sinners. Hell is where every single human deserves to spend eternity because of their sin. Heaven is where God dwells and sinful humans cannot enter. But because of Christ, sinners, redeemed, saved, and transformed by the grace of God are able to dwell with the Lord forever. Heaven is the eternal abode of God's children. And this should give great comfort and encouragement during our sojourn, during our pilgrimage here on earth. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote this. He said, There is nothing more powerful to bring men to Christ, and there is nothing 
that is a greater encouragement to the godly than that they may willingly and with cheerfulness pass through the afflictions of this life, that they may pass through the evil world with their hearts raised to heaven. The power of setting our sights on the world to come, on an eternal dwelling place in heaven. Now we know that the longing of every human heart is to live in a world in which everything is made right. I mean, if, if we cornered every single person on this planet and asked them if they wished to live in a perfect world in which there was no sin and nothing went wrong and everything was perfect, I guarantee you that 100% of them would, would say yes. We all want to live in a world where everything is right. But, John Piper, in his book, God is the Gospel, asks this penetrating question. It's a question that he says is the crucial question of this generation, and really of every generation. It's this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends that you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? If you could have heaven with all these things that were perfect, but there was no Jesus, would you be satisfied with that heaven? It's a penetrating question for us all. Because, friends, Jesus is the central focus of heaven. He is the beloved of the Father. The Father says that it's His beloved Son with whom He's well pleased. He takes great delight in His Son and He's set it up so that for all of eternity, all the redeemed will sing the praises of His Son. We see this in Revelation 5, where there's myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands that are gathered around the throne, uh, around the one who's, who's like a lamb who was slain. And they're all singing his praises, singing, worthy to the lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power. Friends, do you long to be with Jesus? Do you long to not just be in a perfect place, but to long to see your Savior? Long to be with Him. Long to be near the One who gave Himself to you. Gave Himself for you. Do you long to set your eyes upon the, the beautiful One? Jesus' prayer for you and for me, recorded in John 17, says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from the foundation of the world. Friends, Jesus is so delighting in the glory that the Father has given him from before the foundation of the world that he wants to share it with everyone. He wants to share it with you. He wants you to see his glory because he knows that's the best thing for you and for me is for us to set our eyes upon the glory of the Lord. Not just to be in a perfect, idyllic place, but to be 
with Jesus where we are able to behold his glory and be so wrapped up, to be so delighting in him. And so we must desire to see that glory. We must have our hearts aligned with Jesus. If Jesus wants us to see his glory, then we should want to see that glory and must pray that God would change our hearts so that we would want to see that glory. God, make the glory of the Lord more beautiful to me than anything else. And 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says that as we behold the glory of the Lord now, that we are transformed now. We behold his glory now through the word of God and we're transformed until one day when we'll see him face to face, we'll be transformed totally. And friends, it is this hope of being with the Lord one day that is our only hope in this sin-marred world. There's only way, one way for us to see this glory. One way for us to see the glory of the Son of God. And that is we must embrace Jesus today. If we want to see his glory in heaven one day, we must embrace him today. We must repent of our sin. We must stop living arrogantly, but come humbly to the foot of the cross and confess Jesus as Lord. Confess him as the only way of salvation because there is salvation found in no one else. He is the only Savior of mankind. And listen, be clear that every single person must face the judgment throne of God. The Bible says that it's appointed for every man to die once and then comes judgment. You and I do not know when that appointment is, when death will come our way. We don't know if we have another, another day, another week, another 50 years. God only knows. But we must prepare for that day, prepare for that time that we are going to be standing face to face with the divine judge. And we'll, will we be able to stand there by ourselves in our tattered, sinful clothes in which we will be condemned to outer darkness? Or will we be able to stand there in the righteous robes of Christ that we did nothing to earn, we did not deserve it all, but robed in the ro- clothed in the robes of the Son of God and say, I have no righteousness by which you should accept me into your heaven, but instead I come only in the righteousness of your Son. And to see the warm embrace of the Father as he takes us and envelops us in his embrace. Again, not because of anything that we have done, but simply because by his grace, we're able to see Jesus as most glorious and most precious, and we clung to him, and we would let go of everything else. We repented of our sin, and we clung to Jesus. That is our only hope. That is our only hope. If you are hearing my voice today, I plead with you, do not wait another day to confess your sin to the Lord and to trust in Jesus. You do not know if you are guaranteed another day. There are many people today in the midst of this pandemic who are facing death who who two weeks ago never thought that they would be. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Do not boast as if you do, thinking that someday you'll get right with God. Get right with him today. It is a free gift that's available to you. All you need to do is repent. Bow before the, the sovereign God and confess that you have sinned against him. And confess that he has every right to punish you for your sin. But see the free gift, the love of God displayed in the giving of his son. And, and, re- 
and cling to him, believe in him as your only hope. The saving power for our souls is found only in Jesus Christ. And that is what gives us hope. Believer, we have every reason to be able to stand firm in in our lives and in whatever comes our way. No matter what the waves of suffering or difficulty might bash against us, we can know that God is with us. And in our faith given to us through Christ, we have a strong and sure foundation. May God, by his Spirit, help us to stand firm upon that foundation today, this week, and in, our, in the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We want to see Jesus. We want to behold his glory. We want to stand firm upon him. And we ask and we pray, not because of any merit of our own, not because of our righteousness, but simply because of your free goodness to us. Would you please bless us by putting our faith in you, causing our confidence to be in you, and we'll give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Friends, may God bless you this week, and may he enable you to stand strong. We'll see you on Good Friday.